Are you going to kill me, Cody? <laughs> this is Bookswell Intersections, episode eight, and I'm Cody Cisco. I'm here with Dan Lopez. And we're going to subtitle this episode Trapped in a Closet <laughs> because we're in a soundproof room in Chinatown. <laughs> 100% fitting for Pride Month. So welcome to A Closet, Dan. <laughs> Thank you. Glad to be here with you. I want to start out today talking about what people are reading according to an LA Times article today that looked at what books are being checked out at libraries all across the Los Angeles area. Mm -hmm. I saw that article. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, and the number one book, which uh, I am currently listening to via audio book, is Michelle Obama's Becoming. Yeah, not a surprise with that one. Um, that has definitely taken the world by storm um, still. I think I saw a brief headline that said this may become the most read memoir ever. Really? And I don't know how that's been determined, but... Um, yeah, it seems like it's it's uh, sparking something. It's it's a, it's one of those fascinating ones. Like I myself haven't read it, but it's impossible to be in the world, let alone the literary world, without coming across it and hearing like raven like raving reviews about it. Like everyone I know who's had any interaction with it, whether they read a galley or they went to like an event she did or something, has walked away like. You know, like they were touched by an angel or something, you know, like I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> I mean, it's a good book. Yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't say yeah. uh, it's not, you know, it's not like superlatively amazing. I think, it, you know, it has one of the qualities which I enjoy in a book of, of that sometimes it's surprising. So which in a memoir, you know, is doubly surprising because I could have known all of this beforehand. But I did not. Like, I didn't know that her father had MS mm. and that that was something that, you know, she grappled with, especially um, in high school and then in college and then afterwards when she was practicing law. Um, and there's there's more things like that where it's like, oh, this is illuminating something, which is actually really important to shaping her worldview that I didn't know about. So what made you decide you want to listen to it? Um, it doesn't seem like it's normally the type of book that would be your kind of go-to. Hmm. Um, I think I heard about it first last fall. Is that possibly when it came out? And um, I mean, part of it is this hearkening back to some good old days that aren't so far gone. Um, and, you know, I, I realized kind of um, that I hadn't paid quite as close attention to the Obamas as people uh, while they were governing. Um, and, you know, you would you would hear tidbits of their life but like I kind of tune that out because I'm like oh they're political figures right like or at least Brock is um, but even Michelle in her own way and I, I like that I can refer to them by first name yeah, as if <laughs> I mean maybe someday I'll like roll through Rancho Mirage and end up uh, going to dinner over there no um they're politicians so you didn't pay much attention to their public private lives yeah and now you know, now I think I don't know. I wanted to get to know them better, particularly, I think, as because they're political figures who are going to be around with us for a while. Um, yeah, I wanted to get to know them. I wonder if and this is something I've always thought about the the Obamas. Um, they're very good at interacting with the public. Um, and of course, this book will have been looked at by a million people. And we'll be very careful in the way it presents Michelle Obama and her life. Um, so maybe it's less of a question, more of a comment. But like, I, I always wonder 
how much, like how close you're really getting and how much is just this like an artifice or a, a very like nuance, not nuance, like a very like legitimate or um, mm-hmm. deliberative forming of like her story to, you know, put a good light on it, you know, yeah, like yeah. I guess all memoirs do that to an extent, but with someone like Michelle Obama, I often wonder, am I being, am I really looking be- below, like, you know, behind the curtain, mm-hmm. as it were, with, like, a memoir? Um, that's what you're supposed to be doing with a memoir, right? But, like, is that really the experience you're getting um, with her? Do you feel that you I mean, it does seem like you're getting insight into stuff. Yeah. The genius is that when, and I'm choosing my words carefully here, mm-hmm when that peek behind the curtain happens, it's for a specific reason. It's to reveal something on purpose um, that you know, they want the reader to come away with. I'm at a point in the book right now where she's talking about how she grows increasingly dissatisfied with her law career. Like I think a couple of years into practicing in Chicago, and um, she has this feeling that she wants something more out of her life. And, and there's a tension there because... Um, you know, she's the first. Well, her brother and then her are the first in their family to go to college, and um, and to that point, it had always been about for their family. It had always been about you know making ends meet and achieving and sort of being um, respectable black people, mm-hmm. and um, and then she has this you know interesting and I and something I identified with. Um, moment where she's like, I want my work to be meaningful. I want to be satisfied with the work that I do. I want it to have an impact on me and on the world. And so, you know, when she when she reveals that that's kind of why her career took a turn, it's it's in a way that I identify with. And so I'm, I'm happy for her to have presented it to me that way. Right. Um, but yeah, I, who, who really knows what goes on inside the mind of another person, even after yeah. you read their memoir? <laughs> Do you think that after reading this one, you're going to want to read about other first ladies? Like you can go pick up some memoirs from past first ladies? I might pick up Nancy Reagan's memoir, but I probably won't read it. (laughs) It's possible. Uh, (laughs) um, No, you know what? I hadn't read either of Barack Obama's books. And now, you know, I should probably give him a fair shake, too. (laughs) You know, I've always respected the guy, but I haven't, you know, I didn't... um, Yeah, I mean, I'm a huge fan of presidential biographies, which is not something we've talked about on this show in the past. Um, But I always want to wait like a while after. So I've been dying to read an Obama biography. I'm like, I can't for at least like 10, 15 years. Like I just I just can't. So I might, you know, one day pick up one of his books just because he's supposed to be a very good writer um, just to kind of get a sense of it. But it's one of those things I was like, oh, man, one of these days it's going to be like such a great thing I get to read. Yeah. But I. I'm purposely holding off on reading that. One of the, I mean, just because our current political and cultural moment is what it is, um, Andrew Jackson's name has Mm -hmm. been coming up again and again. And I've been thinking like, that would be, I should probably, you know, clue myself into some of the history there beyond what you get in a public school in California. (laughs) Um, His his book, American Lion, was the big one that came out, I don't know, must be now like 10 years ago or something like that. Um, I've, also listen to that one on audio tape uh, or audiobook, which I don't often do, but I listen to a lot of that that way. What's that an way. audio tape? <laughs> an audio tape. <laughs> I put it in my. Some of our uh, remember. I put it in my eight track <laughs> um, when my laser disc is broken. Um, 
but no, like that that I would recommend that one. That's a it's an interesting look at Andrew Jackson, who was a um, I'm gonna go ahead and just say an awful person. Sure. <laughs> I grew up in Florida. He was the first governor of Florida, which not many people know. Bef- ah. I'm not sure if that was before or after he drove all the Native Americans west. Um, but he has a very dark history. Yeah, it, it, I mean, one of the reasons it came up um, is that I've just finished reading uh, Black Indian by Shonda Buchanan, and I'm interviewing her tomorrow. Um, and one of the things she does with her memoir, in addition to sort of a very um, detailed family history and a you know personal narrative, um, is look at the way that whiteness has been constructed in the country and and how that dovetailed with the taking of Native American lands and genocide and and also um, black identity in this country. Mm-hmm. And and the the historical parts of her book made me realize how much um, there is very detailed history that should be um, appreciated more than it is. Um, I can't think of a good segue for this but um in a way do you want to not talk about (laughs) genocide anymore (laughs) um in a way i guess i want i'm gonna talk about a book i recently read that i really love that if you really stretch your imagination has to maybe do with world leaders um it's totally different gear it's new adult gay um romance and it's called red white and royal blue by casey mcquiston um it is an amazing book. It is everything you want from a like queer romance with politics because the premise is it's the first son of the United States who is biracial. He's half Mexican American and you know half white. Um, his mom is the president, so I am ready for all of this. Yes. Um, and he has um, he falls in love with the Prince of England, who is like he's like the Harry. Um, you know, if you're gonna start drawing comparisons to to real world, and it starts of off as like an antagonistic sort of, oh my god, that guy is like such an ass. I don't, I can't stand him. Blah blah. But really, you know, obviously he's secretly in love with him, and the story develops from there, and it gives you like everything you want out of a romance. Um, and I read it recently. I took a trip up to San Francisco, and I'm like, I just need some light reading for the trip, and I read it like. I don't know, in 48 hours on the plane, hanging at my friend's house, you know, it was one of those. Um, it was so great. It was, and it had this amazing sort of energy of like, here's how it all takes place during a, his mom's uh, re-election campaign. Okay. Um, so there's all this like politics going on in the background. And I mean, I guess it ties into the Obamas a little bit because we just completely skip over the current administration and his mom became president right after Obama. And so Uh she's now running up against this like, you know, right wing populist guy who's, I think we don't have to imagine too hard Mm -hmm. to figure out he's like a Trump character. Um, So it kind of, it has this like fun, like fantasy other world we could have been living in, you know? Um, But it's just, it's so great. I loved it. I could not get enough of it. And I don't often read romance novels um, or really kind of like YA new adult novels, but it really kicked off like a passion. Now I'm like, I just want to read all that all the time. Oh, another bit of news since it's Pride Month is that um, Darnell Moore with his memoir, No Ashes in the Fire, 
just won uh, one of the Lambda Literary Awards. Oh, that's right. Best, yeah. Um, I guess it's best male memoir. I'm not sure how they're doing the categories these days. There, there's, I mean, there's a lot of categories. Lambda has like yeah. 20 categories, so um, I don't know the exact name of it. Um, but yeah, that, there was there were so many good winners of that award. Like, I of course like it was on my radar because I'm involved with Lambda. The second they came out, I just went in there. I was like, oh my god, look at all these amazing books. Mm-hmm. Um, so many things that you have to read. And like, what I like about the Lambda Awards is that they put a spotlight on sure books you've heard of, but there's all these like kind of books that were nowhere in your, you know, in your world that all of a sudden, like, now they sound amazing. You're like, where was this all this time? So. Yeah. I mean, it's important for discovery. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. New things. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of, I mean, in the past ones, like, I discovered Dana Smith that way. Like, I just discovered a bunch of authors um, through those awards. So it's really fantastic. That's great. So I have another awkward transition to make to sure. talk about a book, which I I cannot think of a way to, to work this in gracefully. Um, I just finished reading – well, it's a book that's 10 years old, so maybe that connects back to something we were talking about. And it's called Packing for Mars mm. by Mary Roach. And um, I mean a friend of mine recommended it the minute he said, oh, it's like a woman talking about the science behind um, space exploration. I was like, cool. I'm, I'm all there for it. Um, and I think that what stood out for me is how humorous it is, and it takes a very kind of human lens to the problem of space exploration, like what happens to our bodies, how you know when we're when we're weightless, when we're um, buffeted by like high G's on reentry, like all this stuff, you know what what veterinarians were making for food for the earliest astronauts, you know like food huh. cubes. Wow! And but they had come from a veterinary background, working with I think the the Navy or the Air Force. Um, and so it was her humorous take um, on all these topics that really kept me reading, and I was I was into it the whole time. You know, I think the um, underlying theme for this week's episode might be things I've listened to on audiobooks, because that's another one where I didn't get through all of it, but I did listen to that on audio tape. It's, that's right. I'm going to stick with it. Yeah, it's tape. fantastic to come up with a theme after we've recorded the episode. <laughs> It is there all along, hiding here in the closet with us. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but she's she's great. Like she's a, such a another one of those that like everyone who reads her like loves her, and she has such a unique, oddball take on all sorts of. Even the writing style yeah. is oddball. Like you think you're gonna get, you know, she's leading you in a certain direction, and it kind of takes a left turn. You're like, okay, I'm I'm actually still here with you mm-hmm. on it. Like that's a real talent. Yeah, I remember, like, I first became aware of the concept of body farms through her book, Stiff. Like, a friend of mine was reading it. I was like, did you know they do this? They, like, still, like, put bodies out in the woods and wait for them to explode so they can see how the decomposition process works. I was like, I did not know that. And I'll never not know that now. <laughs> uh, <this laughs> Thanks, clo- Mary Roach. Yeah, this closet just got a lot creepier. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there anything else? Uh, yeah, another book that I recently, I know we've talked about this in the podcast before, but I just, I finished the new Ted Chang recently. Okay, yeah. And Exhalation, I, right? Yeah, yeah. I was upset. Like, I love, right now I'm loving anything that is like sort of gay YA or anything that's blowing my mind with science fiction. Um, and that definitely does it because I just, I just couldn't, I just couldn't, I just couldn't without amazing worlds that he creates. Like this, that, my favorite one was the one where like, they they're all sort of like machine people and they live inside like a closed universe. And I don't want to give it away, but it's like it's a title story, I believe. Um, and just like how he can come up with this perfect world, you know, like 
here's how the physics would work in this world. And I don't know, you just really inhabit it. It's, it's so amazing. And now I, I want to go back and read his other books um, or his other book, which I have not done. Um, but now I definitely want to. He is going to be at Skylight Books in the very near future. I believe on Tuesday? Yeah, so maybe, actually, that's the day this uh, podcast goes live. But there's a possibility. If you're hearing this, run to Skylight and you can see Chang. <laughs> or walk through a portal. It'll take you back a couple days. That's, you know, once you read the book, you'll get it. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Dan, thanks so much for being here. I think we should definitely um, have all of our talks in a padded closet. Yeah, because, why not? Um, yeah, why not? All right, thanks. Yep, bye. <laughs> Shonda Buchanan is an award-winning poet and educator who also serves as the literary editor of Harriet Tubman Press. She is the author of Who's Afraid of Black Indians and Equipoise, Poems from Goddess Country, as well as the editor of two anthologies, Voices from Lemert Park and Voices from Lemert Park Redux. I spoke with Shonda at the world stage in Lemert Park about identity, race, and surviving and recovering from abuse through artistic creation. This is Bookswell Intersections. I'm Cody Sisko, and I'm here with Shonda Buchanan. Hi, Cody. Shonda, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. We are in the fabulous World Stage. We're on the stage at World Stage. We're technically on the stage at the World Stage. This stage was the stage from the old World Stage, and this is the new World Stage, so yes. And you I assume you've been on this stage before. I've been on this stage many times. My daughter has been on this stage <laughs> when she was three, actually. It's funny. She, Gosh, she was probably one of the first World Stage babies, and after maybe a year or two of hearing all of us read, she was like, I want to read a poem. And so she got up and she read this poem. The people who could fly, the people who could fly, they came to the house and I said, this ain't no big in house. <laughs> and so everybody in the audience just laughed. And I'm like, is that what I said? Did you hear me say that to somebody? <laughs> so yeah, That's this is definitely a family, family place. Right, with a long and storied history. Oh my gosh, yeah. literally people have met here and then they've had their children and the children have come back and you know, so. Um, it's integral in the community, in the South LA, South Central um, community. My gosh, Kamal Daoud and Billy Higgins were the founders, are the founders of the world stage. And Kamal Daoud is a award-winning, lauded, you know, poet who, um, you know, wanted to create a place for poets to read um, their work in an, in an authentic way. And Billy Higgins was a friend of his, uh, one of the most recorded jazz drummers in history. And he's since passed, um, several, many years ago, many years ago, but the, um, what they created became a, a, um, a place where we literally deposited, he says, deposited our tears. Mm. So people would come and musicians, um, would come poets, fiction writers, uh, people just from the, you know, off the street and just come and they can feel the love, you know, they can feel the authenticity and um, that people were doing work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We were doing the work, you know. And right next door is Esawan Books. Yes, Esawan Books. And they're actually a transplant too. Esawan, I, I was talking to James. James is one of the um, owners, James and Tom. And I was talking to him last month and he said, no, remember? Because I said, oh, yeah, you guys were over on La Brea. He said, no, but remember we had that cart, the little cart, because they started with a cart. Mm. And then they were on Crenshaw above um, 
not the barbecue place, but one of the places. So, and Muhammad Ali came there, you know, it was just like, cause it was still, even though it was small, important. Yeah. And now they're in Lamert Park, which they should have been here always. Right. You know, they There's, should have been here. It's, cause this is the village. This is a locus of so much artistic energy. It really is. It really is. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm lucky to have, my daughter was raised in Esselman Books. And she was also raised here. So it's like having like two two of the parents, the parental figures, <laughs> you know, here. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And I remember um, coming across your anthology, The Voices of Lemmer Park. Yes, yes. That was a labor of love. Mm -hmm. That was four years mm. of collecting poetry, literally because, you know, we didn't have an anthology for this area. We didn't have an anthology to my understanding of African-American poets. So so I think there was a trust, you know, kind of issue. They were like, what are you going to do with it? Mm. So I was like literally asking people that I knew. I'm like, I want this poem. Can you send me this poem? And I need this. And then I moved to Virginia. Oh, yeah. So it was like, but you're not here. I'm like, I'm still working on the book. And it was published in 2006 and it became a seminal book for uh, African-American, you know, Los Angeles poets. Um, and people actually use it to teach, you know, yeah. they, you know, professors are using mm -hmm. it in San Francisco and Vona professors are yeah. using it to to look at um, kind of the uh, the experience of African-Americans in Los Angeles. Gosh, we um, and I say African-American and then we had a couple of Latino Latina poets as well. Uh, one guy was uh, from Belize. We had an, uh, an Ethiopian poet uh, in there as well. But like literally there wasn't a place um, when when this when the voices from Lamert Park came out, we didn't have a book. And I keep and I'm, I'm thinking I just want to make sure that I'm not ignoring anyone that did something. But we didn't have a book like that. Mm. So when we did the Redux, you know, we published yeah. the next one, um, the new one in 20, what was it, 2017? I think it was 2017. Yeah, it was 20, August 2017. And that was our 10 year kind of reunion book, but so many different voices in it. We wanted to still reflect Limerick Park. Yes. But so there are like, a, it's gentrification. You know, there are mm. different poets who come here. People are not afraid to come to this area anymore. So we have white poets in it. Um, I have a Japanese poet, you know, uh, who's in there, but it's still um, people who are important to this area, people who are uh, Lamert Park affiliated or Lamert Park um, entrenched, you know, poets mm -hmm. uh, who've come to the world stage, who become a part of that, the fabric or the fabric or the tapestry, you know, that we create. Um, and you've created a space on the page for them that, you know, it gives their work a lift. Yeah, yeah, it did, I think, I think. And, uh, and maybe half of the poets in the book, in that anthology, the first one, 2006, now have their own books. Yeah. And, and I'm not attributing this, Peter Harris would say, you know, don't take credit for that. I had books before that anthology, but. But it's an important step to be published, right? Exactly, exactly. So they can point to that and say, I was published in this one. Absolutely. Yeah, and the 2017 one got a great review and I'm blanking on the name of the gentleman, uh, Los Angeles book reviewer, and he gave us a fantastic review just in terms of the, the different voices, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I was very blessed to kind of be the one of the conduits. And I have to say, um, Elias Wandimu is the person who published the first one. And this is like at the beginning of Sahai Press. Mm -hmm. And then Sahai Press took off. He, he it became um, uh, LMU, it was entrenched at LMU. 
and um, he, it's now in the Marymount Institute at LMU. He's published many, many books right. um, dealing with Ethiopian culture. But when he and I had a, had lunch a couple of years ago, and I and I said to him, you know, what the ten year anniversary is coming up, we should do another anthology. And we were just, you know, eating a little bit more. And I said, you know, you should just give me my own imprint. And so we were talking and I said, yeah, you should do that. <laughs> and then I think maybe, I don't know, a month later, he can attest to this, but a month later he said, I, I, do you have any names? And I gave him some names and he didn't like my names. I was like tip of the spear, you know, Wanda Coleman, you know, just kind of giving her, you know, giving her credit. And I said, um, something like, I can't remember. And he said, no, he said, Harriet Tubman Press. Oh, we should no. do Harriet Tubman Press. And I was like, I like that. And then I thought, Harriet, is that okay? <laughs> you know, are we going to do the good work? Are we going to do the good work? And so it just kind of snowballed from there. We had a huge um, opening, you know, just kind of launching Harriet Tubman Press. Angela Rye came. Um, a congresswoman, uh, Barbara Lee, was there. Okay, yeah. She was uh, my congresswoman for a while. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Right, right. And who, I mean, I really love her um, and the work that she does as yeah. we are, you know, as politicians do. Uh, but so so the community came, they showed out. I mean, it was packed. We did it at the Vision Theater. So, you know, I think if we're looking at the steps, um, the 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 uh, ascension, I think that's the word that I want to use, yeah, right? Yeah, I love that. The ascension of um, the black voice. I do think that the, the first anthology was a really important part of that, uh, part of it because there are and were so many people who were kind of trying to do that, like um, the Watts Writers Workshop, you know, after the Watts riots in 65. Mm. And that's where uh, Kamau Daoud came from. And then he took that energy and he, he and Billy Higgins started the world stage. And then Michael Datcher came and Michael Datcher founded or created the Anansi Writers Workshop. Mm -hmm. He was like, we're going to do it like this, you know, very orderly, very structured. And then, you know, and then we'll have open mic and you can do whatever you want. Two poems or five minutes, you know, or yeah. you get called off the stage. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So this is an important space, really important space. Yeah. And the, does the community literature initiative work out of here or does that? That's what Hiram is doing right now. <laughs> so, so sort of mentoring and providing a space for writers to work on their craft to get ready for the stage. So, so it's interesting when you, so, so in terms of community lit, you definitely would have to ask Hiram about mm -hmm. that. Um, I think that, um, that's his baby. So I'm not, I don't, I don't, I don't really know. We'll we have can to have him, him on down. the podcast. Sometime. I was going to say, have him on the podcast <laughs> and, and, and ask him to come down. But I know he was instrumental in the press. Uh, he and Connie Williams, um, instrumental in publishing the poets who come here and just saying, you know what, you know, we can do this ourselves. We don't have to wait for validation. Thank we don't you. have to wait for someone. It's yeah. like, we've got technology, we've got the know-how, you know, let's, let's do it. We've got the spirit, the energy, and let's do it. And gosh, I don't even know how many, we can yell upstairs and ask them how many, you know, books they've published so far. But, um, but they have done a, um, an important, um, act, I guess, mm -hmm. you know, you know, important act in bringing our voices forward, you know, in a way and celebrating ourselves, you know, yeah. in a way that we didn't feel we were celebrated, you know? Yeah. And we can do this ourselves. We can do this ourselves. Yeah. Just with your anthology too, you know, you guys did the Los and uh, LA writers, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, the Made in LA anthologies. Made in LA, yeah. yeah. So you did the second one. Second one just came out about a week and a half ago, so that's exciting. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> I should review that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have time to talk about that later. Um, but I want to talk about Black Indian, which is forthcoming, and I see that you're holding in your hand a book of poetry. Yes. Who's afraid of Black Indians? Yes. Maybe my first question is how? What's the relationship between those two? And what were your motivations to, to move from this book, which is published, to this next book, which is coming out soon? Yeah, that's a great question. So my motivation for um, writing Who's Afraid of Black Indians, the book of poetry, uh, um, I've always been writing family poetry. I've always been researching my family history. And uh, I went to a powwow in Virginia. And I'd been dancing at powwows. I'm a women's traditional dancer. So I've been dancing at powwows for now 12 years. But then maybe 10 years, I guess I'd been dancing. So I went to a powwow in Virginia, the Chickahominy powwow. And um, usually when we go to that powwow, there was no issue with being black Indian with someone who looks visibly black like me. And um, and and I have to also say, I'll, I'll backtrack a mo- for a moment. I also sing, uh, rather sang on five American Indian drums. So mm-hmm. my drum would go there and and we would actually sing. So they were familiar with me, like the, the Chickahominy tribe, tribal people, you know, knew who I was. And, you know, many people knew who I was, particularly because of my locks. Mm-hmm. So that day that we went, um, I wasn't singing on the drum. I was with friends. I was with people who were on the drum. Uh, a Cheyenne woman who's a good friend of mine, who's one of the singers, and a couple of other people. So this was a cele- um, uh, an anniversary for the founding of Jamestown. Mm. And there were a lot of official like people there kind of, you know, celebrating their Indian, you know, their, their um, tolerance is the wrong word, but uh, the, the culture and tradition of Indian culture still being there. So the tribal people said, you have to have your tribal enrollment card to dance. And many people do this, um, uh, many American Indian tribes do this, but that tribe had never done that to me. So Mm. I went out and danced in the circle. Mm. And um, after I came out of the circle, uh, a couple of people came up to me, maybe they were the um, uh, tribal members, um, chiefs, head, head, head people. And they came and they said, hey, you know, do you have your card? And I said, no, I don't have my card, but I've danced here before. And they were like, well, please, we don't we we just only want people with our card with their cards to dance. And I was like, wow. So I got I felt away because mm-hmm. they looked just like me. They looked mm-hmm. like my cousins, you know. And previously, you know, all and ours together. There, and and all, yeah, exactly. 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 And so when we did, um, they called for uh, intertribal. And when you call for intertribal, anyone can go out. You know, you don't have mm-hmm. to have regalia on. You know, white people can go out. No people who are new to the powwow, can go dance. So I was like, okay, it's intertribal. I can go back and I can go dance. So when I came out of the circle, there were three or four um, of the, oh, I'm, I'm blanking on the word. Why am I blanking on the word? But um, uh, committee members of the tribe, I guess I'll say that, waiting for me. And they were like, we told you not to dance. And I was like, what? And so and so, I, when I was dancing, I felt everybody staring at me anyway. And I said to my, my Cheyenne friend who was dancing next to me, I was like, this is how wars get started. You know, <laughs> she was like, what are you talking about? I was like, just wait. You know, mm. it was like, cause I can feel it. I can feel it. And when I came out, they were arguing with me and I was like, wait a minute, I know your history too. Like, didn't you send a way for full blood Indians, you know, on uh, to the plains, you know, for some Seminole to come back and, 
um, kind of increase your blood lineage because of the, you know, Indian wars had depleted your tribal men. And so we were like, I was like, wait a minute, I, I kind of, I know your history. Like, you know, you're not full blood either. You know, you just have recognition. So I was like, you made me write, you know, and I said, I'm going to compile this book mm-hmm, <laughs> of mm-hmm. poetry that deals with the intersections of African-Americans and American Indians through my family's eyes. Mm-hmm. And um, so I have a poem that talks about my family, my, my family migrating from North Carolina and kind of um, fighting with the Tuscarora in the Indian Wars. That's the first poem in the book. And then moving um, from North Carolina into Tennessee, Kentucky, Indiana, and then finally Michigan, where I was born. Because as we have um, been on the trail, we've been on the trail a long time, but we've lost things. Mm-hmm. We've lost um, language. We've lost our, you know, our actual like the tribe, you know, the cousins, you know, um, I've had to regain everything. And in my research, when I found locations where my people were, I would go to the powwows and I'm like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm manual, you know, and they were like, oh, there's some manuals here. There's they're in our tribe. And I said, OK, hey, you know, I'm staffers. And they were like, oh, we don't have any staffers here, but you can ask those people. Mm. So it's all been a bit about reclamation. But at the same time, I said, I want to. I want to give it this title, Who's Afraid of Black Indians, to hearken to Virginia Woolf's, you know, Who's Afraid Mm -hmm, of Virginia Woolf, mm -hmm. because her book was about identity and femininity and, you know, womanhood and as a writer. And for me, my book is definitely about Black Indian uh, identity, mixed blood as well, um, and heritage, culture and tradition, you know, just kind of reclaiming that. One of the things I took away from from your memoir, was in the historical records that you go through and in your portrayal of the construction of whiteness Mm -hmm. as a way to lump together American Indians, black people, and sort of erase the the individual richness of their um, traditions and their genealogies and people. Um, And it seems that you also talk about the um, the tribal card as a as a construction of a of a type of identity that is a way of of doing similar things. Right, it's a fabrication. The enrollment card is something that the government constructed so they can be identified and counted, mm-hmm. uh, so they can count the the five civilized tribes on the Trail of Tears, and then those people would be the only people who could get allotment. You know, mm-hmm. anyone who had who they physically moved into Indian territory on those reservations, those were the people who could get government funding and government money, mm-hmm. but then everybody else couldn't. So anyone who didn't get on that trail, anyone who, who didn't end up in Indian territory, who mm-hmm. um, was not in a, tr- a federally or state recognized tribe, even if you were mixed blood, even if they were your cousins and you got off that trail and you left the reservation before that, you couldn't claim the tribe. Mm-hmm. But the really interesting thing that um, Walter Plecker did, uh, the first magistrate, Virginia um, magistrate of Virginia, was he instituted the Racial Integrity Act. And so the Racial Integrity Act essentially, and he was a white supremacist, mm-hmm. um, a known white supremacist. So the Racial Integrity Act essentially said there are only white people and then everyone else in America, you're colored. Mm-hmm. So can you imagine for 10 years or 20 years, if you're colored, and if you're colored, you can be other. And if you're other, then you don't have a tribe. You don't have tribal grounds or homeland. And if you don't have that, then they could take it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, oh, you're from the what nation? Because that's not on our like yeah. logistics. Like that's it's not erasure. on our legislature, you know, exactly. So it's, it's, it's erasure. Erasure and theft, I mean. 
erasure, hand hand. theft, um, which is the precursor for eugenics, you know, right. and just, you know, sterilizing people if they're not white, you know, so. Yeah, um, the removal of children uh, from their Oh my gosh, yeah, yeah. Even today, I think there are, uh, I, so I do ceremony on um, a couple of reservations. So Fort Belknap is um, in Montana is a place where I go. Um, they do have a school. They do have people who are educated, who um, give back to the tribe in many, many ways. Um, teachers and health workers and, you know, that kind of a thing. But at the same time, you can still see the poverty, you know, on not just that reservation, but many other reservations across our country. And um, I have to say that, you know, American Indian women are the most, most murdered women mm. in our country, uh, most raped and abused women in our country. Um, uh, the, the gang violence, the suicide rate on reservations uh, is, is so, is, is heartbreaking actually. It's, mm. you know, still heartbreaking. So it's interesting when you say, what was the motivation for writing this book? And then how does it connect to my memoir, Black Indian? I, I see the rupture of erasure. Like I see the, what we suffered, even though we laughed loud and, you know, we loved each other, you know, in really good ways. But there was also kind of an enactment of that rupture and an enactment of the erasure. So mm -hmm. we're just like literally, even as we, we see physically, like we're lighter, we're mixed. What we used to say, some of us had that good Indian hair, quote unquote, but still there's like the history is like, like pushing itself out of our pores, mm -hmm. you know, in, in um, ways that manifested in addiction and abuse um, and just identity crisis, you know, for, um, for many of us, for many of us. It seems to me that there's a sort of multi-generational transmission of trauma and abuse that, yeah. you know, gets enacted and part of the you know, when, as I followed your your grandparents and then your parents and then your own journey, it seems that there's a, a sort of a, a movement towards how can we be whole? How can yeah. we heal? How can we move past this, what we've inherited? Um, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. I think I always say the blood doesn't lie, you know, and <clears throat> I think in, in terms of the trying to move past it, you really can't move past it until you identify it and name it, you know? And uh, that's in any 12 step program, <laughs> you know, it's like so. So maybe we maybe mixed bloods need our own 12 step program and, you know, just to, you know, kind of, you know, reclaim, um, reclaim ourselves in that way that makes us whole. And that's that's part of why you started to uncover the family history. Yeah, no, it's definitely a reason that I wanted to uncover the family history. In fact, when I was 17, that's a journal entry and, and I still have that. It was, you know, it was a list of things I wanted to do before I died, you know, at 17, why precocious, precocious. <laughs> but it was like, okay, I want to discover my American Indian roots. I mm. want to know, you know, where we came from. So that's always been this lifelong goal. But I think honestly, you know, time has been the thing that um, has given us our peace, you know? Um, did we find ourselves? I don't know. You know, I, I know things now that I didn't know when I was 17. Right. I know so many things about my family. I uncovered a lot of secrets that, um, I needed to know in order to, for me to become a better woman, a better friend, a better mother. Mm -hmm. um, There's a tension in the book between you wanting to know and understand and, and come to terms with everything and 
and the the very real motivation to to leave stuff in the past to not talk about it to not revisit pain yes. that is too traumatic and i wonder if if how you feel as a writer um your need to 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 write it out yeah. as compared to non-writers yeah yeah so <laughs> how i feel as a writer is um so who says it? I want to say um, Annie Dillard, you know, she's one of the things that she says is, you know, write hard. And I, I wrote hard because that was the way that I could understand things. I think I could say it like that. That was the best way that I can make sense of it because I had a record. <laughs> I, had, I could see it. When you came to L.A., was there any um, period of culture shock? coming from Kalamazoo to Los Angeles. So when you said Kalamazoo, I was thinking it's all in your language. It's all in your words like Kalamazoo. Um, yes, Kalamazoo, the word means key Kalamazoo, which is a um, Anishinaabe word meaning hand mirror. But because of the because of the um, the lakes, the Great Lakes. Mm. So, yes, because Kalamazoo was country and Matawan and all those little surrounding townships, they were farmer, you know, farmers, farmer territory and settlements, that kind of a thing. So coming to L.A. <laughs> for me was um, overwhelming. But I didn't like L.A. the first year I got here because it was too big. I couldn't feel my like I couldn't feel my bones. I couldn't mm. feel myself. And um, but I was writing. I was definitely writing about the ocean, which was different for me because we had lakes, you know, freshwater, great mm -hmm. lakes. And I was writing about the mountains and um, the Mahalan Drive, like I used to drive Mahalan Drive when I first came in Sepulveda, like I would go from one end of Sepulveda down at Slauson, all the way, like as far as I could go downtown, you know, because it was like different ter terrain and territory for yeah. me. And then, you know, then I started liking it after the second year. And then I started seeing, so, so this is how my brain works. It's like, it's LA. But why are people in pockets? You know, why are there, you know, the why are Af you know African Americans, Black folks, in the projects and Watts? But then also there's this affluent Black area, you know, up in Fairfax, you know, area. And then why are all the Hispanics over in Boyle Heights? And then, you know, and then the white people get West LA. And then so I started looking at the different factions, you know, and I was like, I'm going to be in all these communities. You know, I don't, I don't have to choose one. You described it in the book as a, um, a place of safety yes. and that the, every trip back home was one of, of, of danger or of having to face violence in some form or another. And, um, and they, you know, sometimes you were like, I'm never coming back. I'm going to L.A. and I'm not coming back to Kalamazoo. <laughs> I wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> to paraphrase. Maybe, like, or maybe wow. actually She's so spoiled. Well, but I, I understand. I mean, you uh, you talked about the life that you'd built here for your daughter and how you wanted her to be safe. Yes. So yeah. that's an understandable impulse. Yeah. You know that joke? There's a Chris Rock joke. Chris Rock has a joke, which is not a joke, but it's a joke. He says, uh, you know, you're not supposed to leave your daughter with Uncle Leroy because you know how Uncle Leroy is. Do you know that joke, that Chris Rock joke? Basically, he's talking about how Uncle Leroy is a molester, a child yeah, molester. Which doesn't sound funny. It is not funny, and and so, but black people are laughing because we all have, you know, maybe everybody has it, you know, but just, you know, since he's telling that joke to a you know, predominantly yeah. black community, we're laughing. So that's what it was like. It was like, I can, I will not leave my child with any 
anyone who I suspect or think, and I literally would tell people, like, if this happens, I'm coming after you. If right. this happens, I know where you live. Do not hurt my child. Yeah. Do not hurt my child. I've done so much work, you know, to make sure she's safe. Do not hurt this this child. Um, v. Kali, one of my friends, has a, a line in her poem that says, do not fold, spindle, or mutilate. Do not fold, yeah. spindle, or mutilate wow. this child. And that's how I felt. That's how I felt, yeah. And I, and I wanted her protected in a way that I didn't feel I was protected. Um, with an uh, with a step uncle, you know, molesting you know me in a, mm -hmm. in a in like in a car, in a way that and everybody was around too, and suddenly it's like, but no one else saw. And I was like, oh my god, yeah. And and you internalize that as a kid, you're like, what happened? What did I do? And then I blocked it out for years. I blocked it out, and then I don't know, maybe it was eighteen, nineteen, twenty, or something like that. It came back, and I was like, what? That happened? And then, and I didn't even realize that many people have a like a trauma like that, you know, mm -hmm. that they block out. Mm -hmm. Our brains are good at putting up walls around things that we don't want to yeah, deal with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our brains will just like compartmentalize it for safety. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, you will survive here. And when you can deal with that, I'll give it back to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So could you share one of your poems with us? Absolutely. Absolutely. So this is a poem, I don't read this one often, but I'm gonna read it today. It's a poem about um, one of my predecessors. I found on the Robert side of my family, my earliest ancestor, her name was uh, Mary Roberts, do I have it in here? Mary Roberts, and she was an indentured white woman who had married a black man, an African, and they had kids. So I'm writing about the Roberts and it's called Part Wolf. <clears throat> The year is 1765. The township, Northampton County, North Carolina. The farmer, James Roberts, grandson of Mary Roberts, a mulatto of some prestige, able to, when she died, leave her sons 250 acres of fertile Meharan, Ginkaskin, Tuscarora land. They were free people of color then. In 1724, born free or bought themselves out. But somebody said, gotta keep count of them. The year is 1790, 25 years later. The very first census taker comes to James's hay-speckled homestead. He white and official. He got unopened leather-bound ledger and a slim quill in hand. Legal words emerged from his mouth what do you possess here? James says, about 400 acres of land roundabouts. Water? No, thank you. Census taker scribbles. Animals. About 100 cows, a steer, 15 horses, 15 chickens, two goats, five mules, James say. <clears throat> Again, census taker. How many you got in this home? James say, six of us. Census maker shifts, cross leg. What kind? What kind? James shifts, squints. Sir, we human. Maybe a drop of wolf. He laugh a little. Census maker man look up, say, what kind? What kind? What kind? 
James take off hat, lick lips. Negro, white, Indian from these parts. My father, John, a mulatto, that's black and white. My mother, Cherokee, and I think my wife, Negro and Indian. Census maker look up and down the farmer's lean brown face. Tell them to come here. Here. He smiles without smiling. James motions to the woods. Kids, wife, show yourselves. Census maker look at wife's Anne's smooth black braid. Look at the kids, skin like wet copper pennies in a mouth. I see. Census maker writes numbers in a box with their faces on them. Others, slaves, free. James sees that nowhere is there a box for the animals, the land. That must be on another page. Shonda, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. And I hope we get to talk again. I hope so too. Hope you're having a fantastic June, book lovers. This is Shannon Egan here to highlight some events in the remaining two weeks of the month. Here at Bookswell, we're all about increasing exposure for underrepresented voices. And today I'm highlighting some events featuring genres that are usually overlooked during the summer beach read season. First up, nonfiction. There's no reason you can't enjoy a nonfiction book by the pool. And my first recommendation sounds like a lot of feminist fun. Wednesday, June 12th at 7.30 p.m., Amanda Montel will be at Skylight Books discussing her book, Word Slut, A Feminist Guide to Taking Back the English Language. Word Slut is a wildly entertaining look at the history of insults, swear words, and catcalls, and how these words are used to keep women and other marginalized genders from power. Friday, June 14th at 7.30 p.m., also at Skylight, Alex Espinoza will present his new work, Cruising, An Intimate History of a Radical Pastime. Similarly to Montel's book, Espinoza uses extensive historical research, as well as his own personal experiences, to illuminate how cruising can be a way to circumnavigate sexual inequality and disrupt the patriarchy. Covering everything from the ancient Greeks to Grindr, Espinoza's book demonstrates the power in claiming your own space. Our next event is also at Skylight. <laughs> this is Sarah Gailey's release of Magic for Liars, Thursday, June 13th at 7.30 p.m. I guess I would classify this book as fantasy noir, and it sounds like a blast. It features a disagreeable, non-magic private investigator tasked with solving a murder at a school for mages, where it just so happens her estranged sister is a teacher. If that description isn't enough for you, Reading Glasses host and author of The Lady from the Black Lagoon, Mallory O'Meara, will be in conversation with Sarah. And finally, graphic novels. Obviously, graphic novels have grown increasingly mainstream, but I think a great graphic novel is a wonderful addition to anyone's summer TBR. Monday, June 17th at 7.30 p.m., join Jake, Mum, and the Graphic Novel Book Club at The Last Bookstore to discuss The Prince and the Dressmaker by Jen Wang. This graphic novel got quite a bit of attention when it was released. It tells the story of a young prince with a secret. He loves wearing dresses. By day, he is Prince Sebastian, a dutiful son on the verge of an arranged marriage. By night, he is Lady Cristalia, a fabulous fashion icon. The only person who knows the truth about Sebastian is his dear friend and dressmaker, Francis. 
This delightful graphic novel sounds like a perfect catalyst for you to join that book club that you never got off the ground in January. And the last bookstore has already done all the work for you, so what are you waiting for? <laughs> As always, you can find out more on our website, bookswell.club, and on Twitter or Instagram, at bookswellclub. Thanks for listening, and have a wonderful week of reading.